um, we are back with a slightly extended um, podcast, uh, bringing you a masterclass with filmmaker Alan Berliner. Um, we're going to be uh, making a kind of second series of podcasts here, planning quite a few over the next uh, month or two, so um, do look out for them. Uh If you're someone who thinks they know a lot about film and you haven't heard of Alan Berliner, then I would uh, advise you to reconsider your position. He is, in my opinion, a true artist who takes personal filmmaking to the next level. He's uh, made various feature documentaries over the year, largely looking at his own family. Um, And there really is so much to learn from this man that if you haven't seen any of his films, um, you know, I really recommend you search them out. You can buy a box set on his website, alanberliner.com, or I do believe they were available and uh, still might be at this point in time on the American Netflix if you have access to that. Um, They have been uh, a massive inspiration to uh, my work uh, at the very least, so definitely, definitely check check it out. Um, Anyway, there's a couple of clips Alan refers to earlier on. Um, The first is his short film, uh, which is on YouTube, and the second is uh, a clip of him in his studio uh, in the film Wide Awake. Um, we've embedded these on our website, uh, scottdog.com, stroke Berliner. The Wide Awake clip isn't the exact uh, clip, but it's a similar kind of one that we found um, when you get a bit of a look into his studio. Um, anyway, uh, here's the man himself. Scottish Documentary Institute for inviting me and allowing for this event to take place. I'd like to thank GMAC for hosting it. And I want to thank you all here for coming. So um, listen, I'm assuming a lot of you are filmmakers, right? That's good. So um, I'm a filmmaker too. And the reason I say that is I don't believe in this master class stuff. You know? I'm still learning how to do this too. Every time I I make a film, I really in many ways start from scratch and I have to learn all over again. Um, But what it really means, the only way I'll even allow myself to pretend I have something to tell you or to share with you is that what basically I have done more than not all but many of you is I've made more mistakes than you. Okay, And I've learned from my mistakes. And I think I can talk about the mistakes that I've made and what I've learned from them. And that's really what I can do here more than anything. So the main thing is we're a small group. It's a small room. It's a nice marathon, rainy Sunday in Glasgow. I'm really happy to be here. So I'm going to show you some things. I'll tell you some things. I'll read you some things. But um, yeah, talk to me. Ask me anything you want about anything that you see. Or if I'm not saying something, ask me that too. Yeah. I can tell you what I've learned from the mistakes I've made about that particular subject. All right? Anyone have any questions? Oh, I also, I do not believe, and I mean this with all my heart, I do not believe in stupid questions or silly questions. There's absolutely no question that you could possibly ask me about filmmaking that I haven't asked someone or asked myself. So really feel free to ask me anything to do with anything that I say or have done or show you or just that's bothering you about your work even that you think might apply to other people. Or if it's specific about your work, I'll answer it in a way I hope that applies to other people. That's also my job. So anything 
before we even begin? Anyone want to <laughs> ask a stupid question? That's a joke, by the way, not to put pressure on anyone. No? How about a good question? No? Okay, listen, what I would like to do is just um, throw you off balance a little bit. And uh, because a lot of people think, well, he's the guy who makes films about his father, his grandfather, his cousin, his name. I do personal things, and I have, and I do. But there was a time when I didn't do that. And I was a different kind of filmmaker, let's just say. Actually, I think I'm really the same filmmaker, but I was doing a different kind of work, uh, much more abstract, much, uh, well, it wasn't, they weren't, these are films that weren't quote unquote about things. And I'd just like to show you a film I made in uh, 1985, which is a long time ago, um, called Everywhere at Once. I call it my musical. And uh, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about it afterwards. But uh, I think it's, in many ways, um, germane, or I should say applicable, and very much a kind of an important step towards the work that I, that I do to this day, which is obviously very personal. and you know, relevant, related to my family and so forth. So do we have, I, I know the projector works. I'm still really making that film again. It's just somehow the films are also about my father or my grandfather or my cousin. But I hope um, what that film shows you is that um, I love editing. Hope it shows you that I like detail. Um, I'm, I could, if we wanted to spend this whole time together, I could discuss with you and share with you why I made every cut that I made in the film. I mean, I can describe what I was thinking, why I did it. I have a reason for everything. And also, one of the things also that it's important for me as I look back at this film is that um, I discovered at a young age, fortunately, well then there's some more people coming. Come, come. Please come. I discovered at a young age that I, um, I was a sort of natural collagist. I love to put things together. It's one of the reasons I love editing. I'm very interested in the relationship between two pictures. I don't put two images together in my films unless I have really thought about it and, and enjoy something about their connection. Right? Same thing with sound. Sound is not sort of a lesser element in my films. You know, I don't put two sounds together unless I really, something about it has metaphoric value or contributes to the structure, has meaning on some level. And then in this film especially, we'll call it sound-image relationship. What's hap what image is to what sound? Just so you know, there was a, I didn't, I didn't shoot any image for the film you just saw. It's a collage from things that I had around, although I had shot five images that end of mine that I actually used in the film. The rest are, if you will, cutaways from hundreds of documentary films, right, that have been liberated, freed from their the box of context that they come from, right? Each, each is from a film that's about something to do with what you see, but not in my film. <laughs> um, but uh, I did actually shoot in the United States one um, summer afternoon from a parking lot uh, looking down at the street. Um, and you see a red and white striped bus on the top of the bus that goes under a lamppost. And I just decided one day, I thought that was really interesting, I put a xylophone scale to that, and I thought, that's kind of cool. What, let's do more of that. And then you know, I built something 25 minutes long that got cut down to this, I think, eight or nine minutes in the end. Um, 
for me, the nice thing about this film, and this film is taught a lot in editing classes here and there, is that it's not even about the images. It shows you how to look at the beginnings and ends of shots. Because once you realize what's happening, you start to realize that, you start to anticipate when will the shot end and how will it connect with the shot that comes. So the, the shot itself isn't even that interesting or isn't the content. It's about the edges. I didn't record one piece of music for the film. It's entirely of uh, found pieces of, of audio that someone had given me, a giant box that someone had given me. So, so I like, that's what I like about cinema. I like making discoveries. I like making connections between things. I want to, uh, any questions so far about that? Okay. Am that clear? Yeah. I don't think so, but okay, okay, that's good for now. But what I want to do is, to, this is sort of, I see this like a little bit as like a prologue section of, what, of today. I want to just show you a, uh, a three or four minute clip of a film called Wide Awake that I made uh, about 2006. It's a film about insomnia, and it's actually a tour of my studio. Bless you. And in context of what we're doing here, I'll give you a little bit about um, not only how I work, but where I work, the studio environment that I, th within which I work, and how, well, okay, I'm obsessive, and how I channel and, uh, you know, use, use my obsessions to further my work. You need to know one thing as a little caveat. In this film, Wide Awake, there's a certain point where the crew um, has, um, I never drink coffee. The last time I had a cup of coffee was in that film. But I, any of my whole life before that, I hadn't had 20 cups of coffee. I, I don't drink coffee. Um, it's like heroin to me, but, or something. It's like a very strong drug for me. So, uh, but I did have a cup of coffee for the film, and on, on coffee, I'm talking like it's a drug, and on, while I was on coffee, <laughs> I went out of my mind and gave a little tour of my studio. So if I'm referring to buzzing or things about coffee, you should know that this is part of what in the film is a little coffee experiment section, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, it would be seen very strange if I didn't announce that. Okay, but the main thing is it'll tell you a little bit about my studio, how I work, and um, the, the environment within which the work I do comes from. That's a great question. When I first started, uh, the film that I made actually after Everywhere at Once was a film called The Family Album. And The Family Album was American family home movies. Those green boxes, you know? Yeah. Those, um, 
American family home movers from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And um, when I made that film, and actually I think I, the second time, the, only, the second festival I ever went in my whole life was in Edinburgh with that film, you know? And um, I, it was the first time I was doing long Q&As about films that had themes, you know, programmatic subjects and um, being interviewed by journalists. And, they, and the thing about the family album is I, I was sort of very lucky to find this very large collection of home movies that I bought. But the thing about it that was exciting for me was like a collection of found footage that I could collage with. I mean, it was exciting for me. And I structured the film from birth to death. And yes, there's a recapitulation of birth because there's sort of a wedding and then the, a child is born again. But essentially the film has, begins with babies and ends with gray and white-haired people and a, fun and a cemetery and cemeteries. And the thing is, I was suddenly talking about my work as if I was some expert on the family. But you know, I, I didn't think of myself as an expert on the family, but it occurred to me that um, you could, if you're going to be an expert on the family and start to talk like this, at least you should be an expert on your own family. That's where the bona fides of that kind of, you know, that, that, uh, that self-understanding should arise. And it just so happened that the next, when I'm thinking about what to do next, my grandfather had died in the middle of writing his um, autobiography 15, 16 years <laughs> prior. And um, all of the boxes, all of the papers and photographs and letters and documents were saved by my uncle in 15 boxes and put in the back of his office and grew oldy and musty and dusty. And but anyway, I, I remembered that they're there because no one in my family ever did. And I just said to my uncle, where are those boxes? Yeah, they're in the back room of my back office. And anyway, so I found all this stuff. Again, another mountain of found stuff to work with. But now I'm in the position, and to me, that was great. I'm a collagist. That's what I like to do. So I made a film about my dead grandfather. And um, I'm going to take you through a couple of films to bring you through the trajectory of where I get to the point where I'm telling you that I'm drinking coffee and giving you a tour of my studio, which as I sit here and watch, is really a strange thing, even to me, even though it's my film and I did it, you know? I must have been out of my mind, and in a way I was. But I'll talk to you about that. But um, in a way, each of my films has been, I had a sort of unhappy childhood. My parents got divorced. It wasn't a fun situation, and um, that's been a big urgency for me and s uh, of things to mediate. And even though I found the I bought the, the, the family album, Home Movies, you know? Somehow I was the right person to find them. Because what it did is it turned my work towards this idea of family. And then once I started on the path of family, it was in inevitable that my work would get closer and closer and closer. First it started out with a small P, and then it got a capital P, you know? And then they're all capital letters, and then, you know. But let me answer it another way, because there are a lot of ways to answer the question, um, and which will set up a clip I'll show you. So documentary, the documentary enterprise as we know it, is all about this word access. Every film that you've ever seen that's a so-called documentary is because someone had access to something that was on some level exclusive or special or unique or personal, what have you, but access to a person, to a place, 
to an organization, to some privileged information, to some situation uh, ahead of time or over time, meaning across days, months, years, what have you. Right? Everyone had access. Has that, everyone, every film is, is the mediation and the fruition of access. Okay? And by the way, for those filmmakers who are thinking about what projects you might want to do next, think about what you have access to. Because everyone in this room has access to something that no one else has. Okay? Now, let's take insomnia. I decided, well, before I even decided anything, I've been a poor sleeper my whole life. We're going to show a clip, though, in a minute. Okay. Yeah, sorry, but thank you. So I feel um, that I'm as qualified as anyone to make a film about insomnia. You know, I've been living it, breathing it, talking about it, dealing with it, coping with it my whole life. So, okay, I'm a so-called film director. And by the way, we'll talk later. I don't believe in all those words. Producer, director, editor. I'm a filmmaker. I do, I'm a storyteller. I do whatever I need to do to make my films. And I'd like even for you to sort of think of yourself that way too because, well, well, we'll talk about that later. But, so, okay, I want to make a film about insomnia. What should I do? Well, what's the conventional approach? The normal approach. The totally acceptable traditional approach. I put an ad in the newspaper. Filmmaker looking for poor sleepers, looking for insomniacs, what have you. You know, for a film project, maybe, and you know, write me back and I'll talk to you. And in a way, that's a little bit like auditioning. There's a little bit of theatricality in that because you're, a, you know, 20 people write to you. Who, which five will you allow me to follow your trail, follow your therapy, meet with your doctors? Will you go to a doctor if I can find a doctor for you to meet? And we'll see if you can get cured or have your, have your sleep get mediated somehow, alleviate problem, get alleviated. And that'd be a perfectly reasonable thing to do, right? Or I could have contacted some sleep doctors, filmmakers interested in uh, making a film about insomnia, and um, maybe you can uh, talk to some of your patients. Maybe they'll allow me to follow the therapy that they undergo with you and go to their home and come in and talk to you about, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe some doctors would have, again, maybe five doctors would have responded and I would, in effect, have auditioned who's the most interesting, who's the most uh, articulate, what have you, and I would have made those choices appropriately. And I could be on the road to making a really, really interesting film. Nothing wrong with any of that. But let's go back to access. And now I'm getting closer to your question. Let's get back to access. I also knew someone who had been suffering from sleep, sleeplessness for his whole life, who was willing to do anything it took to help me make the film. He, allowed, he would allow me to um, bring a camera into, the bed, into his bedroom, an infra infrared camera. His wife was okay with bringing the camera into their bedroom. He gave me access to his dream journals. He wasn't afraid to make fun of himself. Um, did I say he would do it for as long as it took? I think I said that. He, um, he, would, he and his wife were about to have a baby, which I thought would even open up some other sleep issues, right? There were a few more things. But I had access to that guy. And besides, he was a filmmaker, which I found really interesting. So what am I going to, what, what, what kind of choice am I going to make here, right? So I decided to make a film from the inside out.
first of all, the, the very idea, just as a filmmaker, of creating a montage that would be outside looking, inside looking out about what possibly might go on in the head of an, someone who can't sleep was a very exciting thing to me. I mean, I really enjoyed making that montage and I really enjoyed thinking about it and finding images to put that together, you know? And uh, that's not something, you can't ask that of another, that kind of question, I can't ask that of another person, you know? But not to say these films don't get complicated. So there I am in bed, this is a true story. Not a true story, because it didn't happen once, it happened for years. There I am lying in bed, middle of the night, saying to myself, I hate this. I can't believe I got myself in a position where I'm making a film about insomnia and I can't sleep because I'm worried about the film, I'm struggling with the film, <laughs> and that's making me too tired to solve the film. And this is hell, and I hate this, and why did I get myself into this situation? And, you know, I hate this. Right, that's the subject of the film, talking. Meanwhile, the director part of me is saying, this is fantastic. <laughs> I'm inside this guy's head. I'm in a place where no one else has ever gone before. I'm inside the head of an insomniac, and I'm recording everything. I can hear everything he thinks. Right? The whole night. This is incredible. So, you know, it's, not <laughs> it's complicated, right? Um, but uh, that's what I do. I, th I think that uh, from my perspective, there are places I can take uh, you as a viewer. There are metaphors that I can give you, the viewer, from my perspective, looking inside out that bring the film to a, you know, to a different place and your understanding from a different place. And if I may, Emma, use your words, because they're words that are very close to my heart. For my films to work, this screen, which in general cinematic terms we refer to as a window, it, every screen, because every film you ever see, have seen is a window, fiction film, documentary film, animation film, it is a window. It is a window to other cultures, other people, other stories, other lives, other nationalities, other folk histories, everything. It's a, it's a window to the world. That's what it's supposed to be, right? And it's even a window to entertainment. It's something we can look out from our own, whatever, wherever our psyches are, whatever our moods are, we can get lost in that window, okay? That's why cinema's so big psychologically, economically, commercially, for all of us. But for my films to work on the small scale that they do, that window has to, at some point in the film, I can't always predict why, how, when, has to also become a mirror. That window that you start out looking at a story about his insomnia, or it's a story about his father, for instance, suddenly, it shouldn't be about my fault, or it's, well, while the mirror is still there, whether the window is still there, it's suddenly you realize, gee, you start questioning, what about my relationship with my father? What about my relationship to my family history? You start to think about, I want you to start to think about what's happening in your lives, in your circumstance, and I want to shock you. It's like a warm shock of, of recognition that what I'm doing here is not this narcissistic, necessarily narcissistic personal thing that's 
all about me and my family and how, what I think about the world, but I'm trying to do so in a way that turns a screen into a mirror and makes you think about you and yours, whatever the subject is, whatever the dynamic is. You know? Your relationships, your family, your identity, your memory, your family history. You know? That's what I do. Truth is, I, I, I've been diagnosed with something called delayed sleep phrase syndrome. So I don't fall asleep the same time most other people do. I, fall, I get tired much later. You know? And um, there are, as is revealed in the film, there are some rather draconian, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, conditioning, uh, what's the word? Not operant conditioning, uh, behavior modification things that were proposed to me. But I'm not a big believer in behavior modification and I didn't want to, and the director of the film didn't want to say, oh yes, I've modified my behavior and the film has a happy ending because I knew it didn't and wouldn't. You know? yeah. Someone else's head? Yeah, because I mean, doing from things. Yeah, side, yeah. It's putting yourself between the subject and the filmmaker. Yeah. So what's the difference between that and actually exploring the inside of someone else? I I don't know. I don't know that anyone would actually let me go inside their head. <laughs> I think our heads are rather guarded fortresses. Don't fortresses? Don't you? You know. And even with going inside my head, I still have secrets. You know, in private spaces and off-limit things. Oh, I reveal a lot in my work, certainly, you know, about my relationships, my family and relatives and so forth. But, uh, you know, I still have my boundaries. But, you see, the thing is, for me, that's why these, these categories of, of function, producer, director, film uh, editor, shooter, you know, I'm, I don't think like that because I'm not, when I'm, because I'm the subject of the film, and I'm also the director of the film, you know, sometimes I, there was, I made this film about my name, it's called The Sweetest Sound. I'm in the film, I'm outside, the, I'm, I'm in the film as a subject, I'm in there as someone who is talking about the subject, and then I'm also the filmmaker dealing, I've, to make a long story short, my, my analogy for that is I'm the fish, the fisherman, and the chef, you know? I'm the source of the insights, I have to have the insights and I have to know what to do with them. I don't know, it's, I don't even understand that but it makes me dizzy just even saying that. But the point is that um, when I make a film as storyteller, even though I'm inside of it, I'm thinking about metaphors, I'm thinking about how to use the language of cinema to tell my story. And that comes from inside. It's not something that I compose out, can impose from outside. So, you know, I'm listening to myself um, as I engage a subject in a different way. I, you know, I, and I don't know. I mean, one of the reasons I can make films about my family members, so, I, so okay, so I decided to use my family and my life, my life as a laboratory, you know? And because of that, um, certain things are, it's always in play, you know? I can ask my mother things, and my sister things, and my wife things, and even my son things that I can't ask anybody else. 
I made a film, hopefully perhaps some of you will see it this evening, First Cousin Once Removed. It's, um, it's, a, it's about memory and forgetting, Alzheimer's disease. It's a film about my cousin. I couldn't have made that film about any other human being on Earth except my cousin Edwin. And I'll, I'll show you a clip from an, a little short film that's not part of that before we leave. Someone should tell me when we have 10 minutes to go. Okay, that's important. You know? But because of my family, whether it's a karma thing, whether it's just a comfort factor, whether it's cultural, that that's how we talk and think and discuss and it's acceptable in our family, that's just how it is. I don't know. You know? But um, yeah, there are certain things I wouldn't ask you or I wouldn't, like, why were you late, you know? No, no, I'm kidding. I'm, you know, I wouldn't do that, you know? But I could ask myself, you know, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, please. And sometimes I see your wife, your baby son, your mother, your yeah. sister. You can choose to make a film about you and ask yourself those questions. And if you like expose your own life, how do those other people in your family respond to? Are they willingly or unwillingly caught in that net? Listen, when I first started making these family films, everyone thought that, um, well, you know, he's just being who, he's just doing what he does, and no one's going to take it seriously. This is from my, my, I made about my grandfather, to start with, my mother's father. And uh, <laughs> they thought, well, he'll do what he does. Maybe he'll make something, maybe he won't. But we'll cooperate with him because we love him. And then we'll have a screening in Uncle Albert's living room. That's <laughs> what it's going to be. And then I said, you know, forget about Uncle Albert's living room. Uh, the film was just invited to the New York Film Festival. Get ready to watch it at Lincoln Center in New York City in front of 1,100 people because that's what's happening. And everyone was sort of like, what? How could that possibly be? This is a film about your grandfather, my father, you know, my, yeah. And I said, well, I don't know but how that happened, but that's happening, you know? Um, and, you know, if anyone had asked me, what's with your grandfather? What did he do? Okay, it's one thing to say he was in the middle of writing his autobiography when he died, which is true. But so what did he do? If you ask me what he did, I would tell you the honest truth that he was involved in the sale of Egyptian cotton to Japan. And there's not one person in this room who thinks that's a sexy subject, because we know it's not, you know? But that didn't matter, because to me what the film was about is that you can make a portrait of an ordinary person. Interesting, you know? Now, my access was because I had, I had I, my access was to all those boxes of empty, of, of um, photographs and documents and letters and, and all of that. You know, but there's no reason, there's no objective reason whatsoever that anyone should be interested in the life of my grandfather. You know, but through those papers and through my access to his children and all those documents, you know, I discovered things, I learned things, and I lovingly, because all my films are labors of love, put something together. Then I made a film about my father. Maybe I'll show you a clip of that. It's called Nobody's Business. Okay, so ask me, what did your father do to deserve a portrait? And the honest answer is nothing. In fact, in the whole, throughout the entire film, he says so, you know? And that's rhetorically interesting, even funny. Of course, my father's really saying to me, Alan, you know, I've had a lot of problems in my life and I wasn't paying attention and somehow, excuse me, you became a filmmaker. So, now catch the sanity and the logic 
uh, and the um, what's the word and the no, the, it's good logic is what I mean to say. Alan, you became a filmmaker, so isn't the idea of filmmaking that you make films about subjects that people are interested in? It's, it's a very sane line of thinking. Because if you're saying, son of mine, that you're going to make a film about me, you know, one of billions, or he might even say one of skajillions, that's more than billions, by the way, um, <laughs> it's ridiculous, and he says so. Okay? But there are irony, ironies around that, that circulate around that, which my father never got till the day he died, right? which is that he reveals more about himself in his resistance to telling his life story than anything he might have proactively had to say about contributing to telling his life story. He's an, it's an anti-narrative. He's a bit of an anti-hero. But the point is, you know, He's fascinating because he, he plays, and he's not playing, he's being completely honest. He plays this humility card all the way through because that's truly how he understands his place in the world, which is to say, I don't have one. I'm one of the invisible people who, you, who are, you know, cross, who's crossing the street outside right now, who no one knows and no one has any reason to know. Okay, fair enough, it's very logical, right? But I like the idea of turning the ordinary into, I don't, I'm not going to go say the extraordinary, but my point is, because he's my father, I had access, right? Because he's my father, I could ask him any question I wanted, and I did. Because I love him, I felt comfortable, and because he loved me, he participated. I, I often think, and he threatened to get up and leave the room many times, but you know something? In the end, he was helping me with my homework. That's why he contributed to, the, he participated in the film. That's simply what he was doing at the base level. You know? I wanted to read something to you, and part of what um, I'm going to read is an answer to your question. But before, before things get out of hand, and I, I want to read, the, the, let me just read this. That's why I brought the chair here and my computer. Um, I was asked by a magazine, by a book, it's not a magazine. Uh, Someone asked 50 filmmakers to give their advice to young filmmakers. Advice. So I took it seriously. <laughs> and I actually wrote some advice. Um, I'm told some other filmmakers gave, I don't know, how to sneak into film festival parties, you know, things like that. But I actually, I don't know why. I just, so um, the advice I'm giving is the advice I take. You know, which is partly an answer to your question. So um, allow me to read it for a second. And if anyone wants to challenge me on any of this, and I might even stop and annotate, by all means, please do, okay? I'm going to sit just for a second, because I have the computer. Okay, ready? <clears throat> Follow your fascination. Find what it is you're drawn to, what you're magnetized by emotionally, psychologically, unexpectedly, irrationally, irrationally, I'm sorry, ineffably, the ideas, persons, places, or things that make you think, that make you worry, that bring you joy, that bother you, that amaze you, that make you want to know everything there is to know about them. Enter your subject with an open spirit. Each film you make is a journey. Throw away your expectations, assumptions, and your detailed itinerary. 
Allow yourself to get lost along the way. Make room for surprises and discoveries. Play. Remember that filmmaking is a process. No one gets it right the first time. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. In filmmaking, self-doubt is both contagious and self-fulfilling. Know that some things will be out of your control. That's part of the process. But also know that one thing leads to another, quickly or slowly, but always. Know that a path is a path, even in a fog. Don't be afraid to have bad ideas. Every good idea is the great-grandchild of bad ones. Bad ideas point you in two directions, away from what doesn't work and towards what does. Listen to your film. It will tell you how it needs to be made, quietly at the beginning, like a soft pulse, then loudly and more clearly towards the end, like a strong personality. Sounds crazy, but it's true. Make friends with luck, accident, and serendipity. They are forces that can be garnered and cultivated. They are your allies. Believe in yourself. Trust your instincts. You've been honing them your entire life. You are your own best guide. Try to become your own best critic. In filmmaking, confidence is both contagious and self-fulfilling. Each, is, is each film you make is a unique equation to solve. Take pleasure in the challenge of finding unique solutions. Each film you make is a mystery to solve. It will confound you in every turn and push you to the edge of your wits. It's supposed to be hard and fun. It's supposed to be fun and hard. You will never stop learning how to make films. Get used to that. OK. Um, anyone want to challenge me on any of that? But if I, I mean, it's sort of basic stuff, but I think it's really important. Um, As I said, I'm a big believer in bad ideas, you know? And um, I, I just want to riff on some of those things that I said. I, I understand that maybe some of you teach at schools and maybe some of you are students at schools. And I understand the purpose and the role of treatments. Treatments, right? I've never written a treatment in my life. I wouldn't even know how to. So I'm anti-treatment. All right? So if I'm stepping on anyone's toes here or ruffling anyone's feathers, I don't care. I'm here, I have the, I have the stand, and I'm going to tell you what I think about that stuff. Number one, this is not a paint-by-numbers game, this thing called filmmaking. Every film you make really should be a kind of journey. Okay? The idea that you would even say or think, I'm going to go talk to someone, and this is, they're going to tell me this. And then I'm going to talk to someone else, and they're going to tell me that. That's crazy. You know? In fact, you know, we could do a whole class on interviewing. What's, in what's, what's the best interview? You know what the best interview is? Where you get someone to say something never, they never even have even thought before, let alone said before. The best interview is something, someone says something that changes your film, not, not fulfills a, a, 
you know, a hypothesis or a, a, a linear track that, that's been prearranged and predetermined? You know? I'm a big believer in getting lost along the way. I'm a big believer in finding your way. And even if, yeah. I mean, if you're looking, if you're looking straight ahead only, then you're not seeing what's behind you, you're not seeing what's passing, you're not seeing what's on the side, and you're certainly not seeing what's out of focus in 360 degrees around you, or in focus. You're just, if you're looking at the end result, if you're looking at, for an end result, you're, you're not engaged in a process, you know, that's going to enrich your film. Because every film is more than what it appears to be. That's what people don't realize. A film is like, a synopsis for a film is like, a, is like looking at a Trojan, it's a, a Trojan horse. It's what's on the outside. But each one of your films should contain threads and themes and implications and, and subtexts galore. Because that's what life is. You know? So, yeah. You, the more you think you know about your film, I think big problem. You know, in fact, a lot of people um, come to me and they say, I want to make a film about my grandmother or grandfather or father. And I say, okay, tell me about the story. Well, you know, they actually think that they are, um, you know, they invented the chair. You know, they did something. You know, I, I'm the person who made films about the father who did nothing and says so. But the point is, it's like if you, if you even have a story to tell and you want to glorify your you know, your relative or something, that's a big problem. Not that the glorification is the problem, but if your project is, is so focused on, and you know everything that's going to be contributing to it, what its role is, then you're not seeing what else your film can be about. And you can be blind to the enormous implications of, of your subject, you know? So you really have to, like, you know, think of it as clay that's wet and that's hardening slowly, drying slowly, you know? I'm a big believer in process, big believer in process and patience. And I realize in school situations, you're under time pressures. Okay, so, you know, you deal with that. Um, ever, after I finish making a film, um, I usually take a year off for several reasons. One, um, I need to forget how hard filmmaking is because if I didn't forget, I wouldn't do it again. That's really true. And yes, I stole that idea from people who have given birth and expressed the similar idea. But, and I'm not comparing. Just saying, I understand on my level what that means. Um, I also travel with my film, right? And show it around. And so... That process of traveling and talking about my film, for me, when I finish a film, it's not the end of the film. The process of screening it and talking about it is also still part of that film. Because I'm learning what I've done. I'm learning what I wanted to do. Did, did I do what I want to do? Did I do what I thought I did? Did I do what I hoped to do? And it's not always zero sum, but to what extent did I do what I imagined and hoped that I was doing? So that's a learning process, and I can't let go of the film I've just made until I sort of go through all that. Secondly, um, or thirdly, or fourthly, I stopped counting. Um, for me, the subjects for the films I make are, um, have to combine, uh, have to become a, an equation 
between two primary elements, and some of them I, in the first paragraph that I read to you, it has to be a, a meeting of urgency, which is say need, and fascination. It has to be something that I need to do, I feel I need to do. I can't get through the rest of my life without doing, but at the same time it has to have a psychological and an intellectual fascination because it's gonna be a subject that I'm gonna have to live with for a while, and it has to be endlessly fascinating to me on some level. Now, back to this question of um, personal versus personal filmmaking versus traditional, I'm not, I'm not loving categories. Um, because my films, sure they're personal, they've been called you know, personal nonfiction, essay films, autobiographical films, biographical films, experimental documentaries. I've been called every dirty word and the combinations thereof. It doesn't, I, it doesn't matter to me, none of that matters. I, I've never actually even called myself, with all due respect, a documentary filmmaker because I'm just a storyteller. That's the easiest word for me to think. But I have to come up with something that balances those two things. Um, and, um, but after I made, like for instance, after I made um, my film Nobody's Business, which is about my father, which followed the film of my grandfather, so I felt that I had done this sort of diptych, maternal side of the family, paternal side, that sort of felt good. They're both very intense personal films where I learned the dangers of entering into the psyches of families and how you have to be careful and delicate and all this. Um, so I thought the next film that I would make, I wanted it to still be on the subject of identity because um, I'm sort of, I'm already a sort of citizen of that, of a lot of the issues that circulate in that universe. So I, I thought about the subject of names. I'm gonna make a film about names. And I thought, okay, I can do that. Although I have to tell you, um, you know, each film I make, I talk to my friends when I get the incredulity. For instance, yeah, your grandfather, yeah, okay, uh, Egyptian cotton to Japan. Uh, what are you thinking here? You know, 15-minute film maybe. I don't you know. It feels like a short to me. I, it feels, I mean, it's not interesting. And then the film about your father. You know, who nobody's, it's ridiculous, right? Um, you know, what do you, you pulled off, you managed to pull it off with your grandfather. You think you're going to get away with another film about someone <laughs> who no one cares? I mean, you're really asking for trouble here. And then my filmmaker friends, when I said I'm going to make a film about names, they all said, rightly so. Okay, big shot. What are you going to use for picture, for images? You know, what are you going to, how are you going to, and to be honest with you, I didn't even, I didn't even think about it. It's not, a, it's not, those are easy problems in the end. But I have to say, I thought one of the things I liked about the, prob the project of a film about names was that everyone has one, right? Everyone in this room has a name and you all have a name story. For better, for worse, it's somewhere in between. Something about your name you like, you hate, uh, you embrace, you're at a distance, you changed it, it's who you are, it's, you're fulfilling your parents' hopes for you because they're the ones who gave it to you. What were they thinking? Anyway, and not only that, I thought what a rich subject because every nation, every culture, every religion, every race has different naming values, different naming rituals and cult, you know, wow, it's an amazingly broad subject. Oh, good, I can get out of the window of my family, right? <laughs> it was a really good idea, I thought. So. You know, New York City where I live, a lot of different people from all over the world, and 
I spent a fair amount of time on the streets talking to people about their names with the camera, you know? Chinese, Russian, Japanese, Indian, from, uh, you know, men, women, people who changed their names, people who hated their names, for all different sorts of reasons, different languages. And I made sort of a, I put together a version of that film. And, you know, these friends who aren't afraid to tell me what they think <laughs> said to me, well, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Might even be fascinating. But sorry, man, it's not what you do. <laughs> Doesn't tell us where a name lives. Where does a name live? In our identity, in our psyches, you know? And, um, okay, back into the kitchen, back into this, back inside the house, because that made me realize, okay, you don't have to, um, you can make a film about names. Um, you don't have to make a film about names, that use that a meaningful film about names that uses 10,000 names. You can make a film about names that just uses one, you know, if you do it the right way. So if you take that name and burn it, squeeze it, rip it, tear it, step on it, I don't know, splash it, freeze dry it, you know, do every verb you can think of to something and let it come back together. So uh, what name was I going to choose? What name did I have access to? You know? Well, you got the idea. You know? Which is scary stuff because names are also involved with ego, right? And it's a very narcissistic thing to like actually explore your own name. But again, I try to do so in a way that makes you think about your own. Know? Understand your own better, where a name lives. All I know is all the, I mean, I really am a big believer in that. Films start off with a soft pulse, a faint pulse, and they end up with a strong personality. How that happens, I don't have a formula for that, you know, but it does. And um, are there people in the room who edit? Uh, you edit, just raise your hand if you edit your work or you edit for other people. Just, oh, that's a fair amount. Okay. Because it has to do with, with editing. It has to do with um, you know, making the material yours. It has to do with how you notate the material. Just a few tips on editing, if I can, just for a few minutes. I'm a big believer in personalizing the editing room. Um, and what I mean by that is particularly, not the editing room, but personalizing your, um, what do you edit on? Avid's or Final Cut or, or what do you edit on? Just well, you know, I, I just, I'm a big believer in um, um, breaking things down into the smallest possible pieces, you know, which is a way of digesting the material, spending the extra time to do that. I'm a big believer in um, giving things quirky names, you know, using, using your own private language to describe something, you know? If something you think is great is, is bonkers or zonkers or something, then call it bonkers one. If there are two, call it bonkers two, I don't care. But the more personal it is, and that you're editing the lingo and the lexicon of your editing experience is personalized to you, then you will operate more fluidly 
and more meaningfully through that terrain. It might sound silly, but actually, you know, <coughs> it's, it's your universe and you put things in orbit around you. And I'm a big believer, as I said in that uh, section uh, about um, that acting at the speed of thought. The last thing you want to do as a filmmaker is frustrate yourself. You could be a slob in real life. Not that I believe the world is organized into slobs and obsessive neatniks or something, although I'm more on the neatnik side, right? But I'm not such a good dresser, you know, it's okay. But my point is that you have to create, you have to put things in orbit around you so that when you think of an idea or you think about something you want to find or something you want to try, you don't frustrate yourself. You know where it is. Know where things are around you. And the only way you know where things are around you is because you put them there. All right? So don't give things distant, formal names that will be difficult for you to remember. Call them things that will be easy for you to remember, that will be hard for you to forget. It's all about the process. The process is not outside what you do. The process is, has, is inextricably and intimately tied to what you do. That makes sense? And also, I'm really a big believer in bad ideas. I can't say that enough. <laughs> if I were to write a book about filmmaking, I would call it, this book is a bad idea. You know? Because the fact is, if you can't allow yourself and indulge yourself with making mistakes, then you really can't do this. Because I can tell you, you know, as someone who teaches it, believes in it, loves it, no one gets it right the first time. No one. There is no such thing. You have to enter into a dialogue not only with yourself over time, but ultimately you, you end up in a dialogue with the work itself. And the work, if you're lucky, the work talks to you, tells you what to do. This is my process. Not everyone likes to do this. And by the way, I want to just say one other thing about editing that I think is interesting. Hold your question because it's making me digress. If you don't love editing, don't do it. Really, find someone else to do it or, you know, learn to love it. Figure out a way to love it. Because you're not going to be good at something, generally speaking, you're not going to be good at something that you fight against. You know? I said it's supposed to, I, I want every film that I make to be the hardest thing I've ever done. I want it to be that. That's the way life is supposed to be. That's how you grow. That's how you evolve as a filmmaker, but also as a human being, as a person. So that's a given to me. Right? Even shooting. If you're not a shooter and you don't like shooting for whatever reason, don't do it. You know? Gravitate towards what you love. You know? And certainly in terms of the editing room, you know, if you're not excited to be there, then don't. I don't know how they teach it in school, you know, you're supposed to do something to qualify or to satisfy a requirement. I don't know. Bless you. You know? But um, How do you know? How do you know? Passion. Yeah. Um, at some point along the way, um, oh, I just want to say one thing before I answer. So I'm the type of um, editor, all right? And by the way, I just want to say, I edit my own films. It's not an easy trick, editing your own films. And I don't say that out of bravura. I say it because 
I am harder on myself when I look at my work than anyone else. So no one can say anything that's going to upset me when they look at my work and they don't like something. Really, you know, and so and that's really important to know. The way I, in terms of my my work, I I don't know if it's discipline, or if it, I'm not even sure what it is. But the bottom line is, I don't care how much the shot costs to buy to shoot. I don't care if I spend three weeks on the sequence. I don't care anything. If it doesn't make my film better, or it's in the way, or it's not working, it's out, and I can do that. You know, so. Uh, but I am someone who believes in process. And I'm able to look at my film day after day after day without, and I'm going to say without getting bored, but I don't, the word boredom isn't a word I ever use, really. It's not applicable to my life because you're not supposed to be bored by what you, what you do. Your, your film is a, you know, starts out as a fledgling thing and eventually boredom, is not, it's not, boredom isn't a word that's applicable in filmmaking. You know? It doesn't have to be fascinating every time. And you could get disgruntled, and you can get frustrated, of course. But I'm someone who likes to um, find what's bad and try to make it good. I'm still looking for things that are good that I can make better. I'm always looking for things that I made better yesterday that can still be made better. And then there are some things I work that I think are working really well. Guess what? Sometimes I think they could be made better, too. And I'm always looking. I'm a perpetual like upgrade to perpetually upgrade everything. I have friends of mine who show me. Um, and to me, that's my editing perspective. I have friends of mine who uh, will show me a film or sometimes even something they've wrote and ask for my comments. And I'll like, give them six things that I think could be better. And then and they say to me, oh, well, thank you, but you didn't tell me if you liked it. <laughs> or did you like it? And I'm saying, that's not what, it's still a piece of clay. It's not about liking or not. These are things that I thought can be better. And that's how I, you know, how I approach things. And that's another thing. In editing, per se, I, it's true, it's for directing, too. Making films. So I don't, I'm not so interested in those distinctions. I work for the film. I don't work for anyone else. Whatever the film, whatever makes the film better, I will do. And that's why you can't hurt my feelings if you tell me you hate my film while I'm still working on it. Because if you say something to me, that makes my film better, even if it breaks my heart, I'm happy. I'm grateful. And I thank you. I put you in my credits. It's true. Simple as that. You know? And listen, for those of you, you know, who are interested in making personal work, there are some traps. There are some pitfalls. Sentimentality. If the audience knows that you're making this film out of sentimental reasons, and that's why you're doing it, and that's what you want them to think, not going to work. Won't transcend. If the audience sees, senses that you're making this film about this person because you're settling, you're getting revenge on someone, you're settling a grudge, something like this, and that's why you're doing it. Not going to work. You know, do that, do that some other way. If an audience senses that you're um, trying to tell us that you think someone was really important because you think they're really important or because they were important to you and you can't make that transcend you know because it's bordering on this word hagiography you know this uh, wasn't this person great and I thought this person was great and you should know that um, 
you know. And the key here is irony. You know, your film has to, personal stories have to be filled with irony. You know, my father thought I should have been a, um, like all of our parents, thought I should have been a, an engineer or a lawyer, an accountant or something. You know? But of course, I'm a filmmaker and he might not have wanted me to be a filmmaker, but ironically, whatever skills I have and aptitudes I have as a filmmaker, a lot of it comes from who he is without him realizing it. And of course, the ultimate irony is I never would have made a film about him <laughs> if he wasn't a filmmaker, which changed his life in many ways. So, you know, there's always, I'm always looking for the swirl of ironies that surround any story, particularly when they're personal. <coughs> I made a film, um, I made a film about my um, grandfather called Intimate Stranger, the guy with the 15 boxes in the back of my uncle's office. I spent nine months reading all the letters. This is before I ever had a computer, once upon a time. Hand wrote everything, took notes, copious notes. Learned things from the letters, learned things, pardon me, from the documents. Understood my grandfather's life with the uh, obsessive, um, like uh, where an archaeologist meets an anthropologist meets a private detective. Okay, that's how well I understood. And I had a conversation with my mother and her three brothers, one at a time. I interviewed my mother first, four-hour conversation with all the questions I generated, right? Then I took what I learned from her, changed some of the questions because now I had answers that generated new questions. I brought that to the, her first, her older brother, another five-hour interview. Took what took that, changed the questions, new things. When I finally got to the, the, my youngest uncle, my mother's brother, who's, this is what he says to me. He said to me, Alan, I remember the day you were born. It was one of the happiest days of my life. You were the first grandchild. You were my first nephew. He said, um, when I got the news, I ran, I ran, I grabbed my bicycle, and I rode as fast as I can, as fast as I could, to the hospital to see you. Within two hours of your birth, I was holding you in my arms. And now I'm sitting across from you, and I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of you. Because he knew that I'd interviewed his brothers and my mother, and I knew everything. He said, I, you know more about my mother, my father, my family, their relationship, than I do. And he was right. You know? That's power. You know? One of my uncles, of those three, saw the film at that aforementioned New York Film Festival screening. Couldn't see it ever again. Told me it's too painful. My mother and the older brother have seen it 20 times. They go there, if they were at a screening, I'll introduce them. Sometimes I'll even like, someone will ask a question, I'll ask one of them to answer it. They're totally comfortable with it. One of my uncles, though, it is so painful, he saw it once, can't see it again. It's like a garden, you know, you have to watch where you walk. I was afraid my father would um, never talk to me again after I made nobody's business. I didn't know. For me, there has, for me, there has to be something about the project that's really scary, you know? And I have to be able to turn that fear 
into fuel. You know, because it's part of the risks of doing this stuff. You know, I'm not comfortable in in a safe with safety because even doing these personal things, there is a risk. You know, there's risks that people are going to say, "Oh, he's he just makes fun about himself. It's narcissistic. It's all these things." You know, and that's the risk I take. You know, but I work really hard. Don't always succeed for sure to take these projects and make them to turn the window into a mirror, as I mentioned. You know, that, 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 that little trick. For each film that I make, I also have to go through a period where I step back and I think about how to tell the story and what metaphors I can find. We, you know, you saw me do a little bit of that in Wide Awake, but for um, Nobody's Business, for instance, I had this idea about the boxing. My father used to once describe to someone, because this was our relationship, I mean, this is how we spoke to one another. Um, and he called it verbal sparring. We did verbal sparring. I don't know, can't, maybe you do that with your parents too. I don't think it's that unusual, right? But um, so I had this idea, of, I had this old boxing footage. And um, so that, you know, I didn't want to use it too much, but I didn't want to use it, I just wanted to use it just enough. And I'm, I use it throughout the film. And in fact, I try to use it throughout the film where it has this sort of emotional, psychological, but then slash physical sound image relationship. So if we saw other sections, my father says, apropos of something that we're talking about, he says, this is over boxing footage, you know, he says, you keep on hounding me and pounding me about a subject. So suddenly those which are emotional words and you see what's going on on screen about boxing, it changes the meaning. Uh, later on in the film, I, I allow him to attack me. We're talking about the divorce and I'm saying some things and then he responds and saying, that shows your lack of sensitivity. That shows your lack of empathy. That shows your lack of feeling for what this means, which is hurtful to me. I'd rather he didn't say that to me. But I put it in the film because, well, A, I have the power not to, but I want him to also hit me too, you know, with words. And, and that's also said over the um, boxing. Later on in the film, one of my cousins, in describing my relationship with my father, says, um, you know, when you get together with your father, it's a meeting of the irre irresistible force versus the immovable object. And I thought, wow, what's the great names for two boxers? You know, I could make a poster, the irresistible championship bout, irresistible force versus the immovable object. And of course, the great thing about that and the point of the boxing is that no one wins. It's not about winning and losing, right? It's about the, the um, what's the word? It, it, the, the white trunk person gets hit, he, he gets up. Black trunk person gets hit, he gets up. It's just, it's a continual, perpetual, I don't want to say battle, but it is, I guess it's a battle. It's a perpetual conversation. It's a perpetual dialogue. Now, just so you know, when I first had the idea, I thought to myself, okay, because you have to take every metaphor literally or extend and understand it you know, thoroughly. I thought, hmm, boxing. How are boxing matches structured? And I thought, oh, the heavyweight bouts are 15 rounds. So at one point I thought, I'll have a title card, round one. And then we'll have something. Then it'll be over somehow, and then it'll be round two, and I'll have 15 title cards each round, 
And that could be a very interesting way of structuring the film. And I considered it. And then I thought, well, two problems with that. One, in, in boxing terms, not that I had to abide by them, but in, boxing ter in the boxing world, each round is three minutes. So 15 rounds would make the film 45 minutes. And by the way, as a, just a little aside, don't make 45-minute films, <laughs> OK? Because sh your films will be good. And when they're good, and when they're appreciated by other people, and you send them to festivals, 45 minutes is too long to be considered a short. And it's too uh, short to be considered a feature-length film. So don't do that. Stay under 30, perhaps even like not more than 18 or 20 minutes. Some festival director once told me the ideal short is eight minutes long. Don't hold me to that, but that's what someone told me once, a festival director. Just That's someone's opinion. But 35 minutes is not an ideal length for a short. And if you're going to, and then there are television hours, what are they, 60 minutes, 52 minutes, you know that part. But don't, that netherworld in between, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help, it's not a good thing. So stay, figure out what your subject is. Don't get out of that middle territory. I didn't want to make a 45 minute film. But the other thing I didn't want to do with the boxing is I didn't want, if I had rounds, what, how do audiences look through that window at boxing matches? Who's winning? Who's winning? I didn't want someone to say, oh, it's round, round 10. I got the kid winning 7-3. What about, you know, I didn't want that. I didn't want counting. I didn't want, you know, I didn't want that. So I just use it four or five times in the film, hopefully in the right strategic place, you know. Um, but again, to elevate my dialogue with my father, to become a conversation that's across generations, you know, that's across and between different perspectives on life. And I'm not even saying I'm right and he's wrong. They're his photographs. I'm allowed to ask him questions. You know? Who owns the family history? My father? Well, he says he does. They're mine too. Everything that goes through him is part of who I am. My identity is tied to him. And both of our identities are tied to these strange looking people who we don't know. Yeah? I was wondering, like, obviously in there, your father doesn't seem very interested in his ancestry, but are yeah. you quite interested in it? Well, at the time, I mean, at the time, I, I'm the one who found the photographs. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm less interested now because my work and life are moving in different territory, though I have a nine-year-old son. You have to understand, these films in my family, in my life, they're my home movies. <laughs> Nobody's business is a home movie in my family. My son will watch it by the time he grows old. He'll have seen it, you know, a hundred times and learn a lot of things for better and for worse about his life, our family, where he comes from, you know, the psyche of our family, you know. Maybe he'll do the same thing to me one day. Maybe. So we have to end, right? So anyway, I'm sorry to keep you. I mean, thank you for being here. And um, yeah, I didn't keep you, you know. Um, maybe I'll see you later. And so I wish you all good luck with your work. And thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me again, Noe. And until next time. Well, thanks very much for listening. I uh, hope you stuck with that and found it worthwhile. 
uh, listening to it really doesn't get old for me. Um, I think he speaks and understands personal filmmaking to a real expert level. Um, like I say, you can look up his films um, and you'll never have seen anything quite like it before. Uh, that's it for this podcast. Please check out the back catalogue or stay tuned for more episodes soon. Um, if you really enjoyed that, you may be interested in the very first episode we ever did on SoundCloud, um, which features a conversation between Alan and another great filmmaker, Victor Kozakowski, which is uh, a real rare and uh, unique thing to listen to, so recommend uh, that as well. Anyway, um, all the best for now. Thank you.